Welcome back. You are listening to the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and I'd love to see you behind the scenes where you can also suggest future questions for guests we have coming on the show. You can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But to the show today, and my word, what a guest we have in store for you as we welcome an individual with over 30 years of experience in SAS, driving explosive growth at his companies. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Rob Reed, Executive Vice President and Managing Director at Sage Intact, the undisputed global leader, serving finance teams of any size, and with over 10,000 employees and over 3 million customers, their financial solutions generate over $2 billion in revenue. As for Rob, prior to Sage Intact, Rob led Intact over an incredible eight-year journey, culminating in their reported $850 million exit to Sage in 2017. And before that, he was CEO and President of Lucid Era, a market leader for on-demand business intelligence. Prior to Lucid Era, Rob was Group Vice President of Industry-Leading Siebel CRM for Oracle, managing the SMB sector. And very fun fact about Rob, over his phenomenal 30-year career, Rob's been involved with eight startups, of which seven have had very successful exits. Now, that really does defy the laws of startup success. And I want to say a huge thank you to Byron Dieter and Greg Sands for the fantastic questions today. I really did so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, let me tell you about Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform for professionals, teams, and businesses who want to master their contacts and create authentic connections allowing you to merge contact information across your address books into a single source of truth while automatically identifying and merging duplicate contacts. They also keep all your contacts up to date with public data, including photos, jobs, and social profiles, and keep them organized, synchronized, and up to date and safe, able to scan business cards and automatically capture signatures from Gmail. These and many more features have made Full Contact an essential app for people-focused professionals, including many VCs. And to download this app, simply check out Full Contact on the Apple App Store, Google Play Store, or online at fullcontact.com. And speaking of awesome products you need in your life, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, Rizu. Rizu is an online fundraising and donor engagement platform originally designed for non-profits, but now serving a broader range of personal, charity, and peer-to-peer fundraising causes too. Customers range from giants like Habitat for Humanity to individuals and SMBs, and you can check out more at rizu.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Rizu did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. Who knows, work with WePay and you could even be featured here in a future profile. Simply start at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But that's quite enough from me. And so now I'm thrilled to hand over to Rob Reed at Sage Intact. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Well, Rob, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things, both from Byron at Bessemer and Greg at Costanoa. So thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Harry. I'd love to kick off today with a little on you. And did you always dream of financial management? And what's the story with you and Intact today? Well, Harry, it's really funny that you say that. I majored in advertising in college, and they made me take computer science, and they made me take accounting. And... I hated both courses. It was just like, oh my God, I want to go into advertising. Why do I need to understand how to program a computer or why I need to understand the difference in debits and credits? It sort of served me well to get that (laughs) well-rounded education because sure enough, five years after getting into the workforce, I had this desire to get involved with high technology and get involved with the PC revolution and it served me pretty darn well. So 
thanks to the public school system for allowing me to have a great career. Well, I mean, what a credit that is. But I do want to break the interview stay up into a couple of different segments, starting on the theme of CEOship. As we said before the show, you've been involved with eight startups, seven incredible exits, then maybe move one layer down on culture, uh, and then also finish on kind of customers and metrics. How does that sound? No, that sounds super. So starting on CEOship, as Byron reminded me before the show, multi-time successful CEO. Let's start with that. And how have you seen maybe your role and understanding of what it takes to be a great CEO change over the last 30 years or so? Well, you know, that's a very interesting approach because I, I think CEOs from 30 years ago thought that if they had a great idea, they had to find the investors so that they could be able to deploy that great idea and then be able to have the, the capital to make that idea a reality. Then they felt like they had to go and find the initial customers to prove the concepts and, and to really perfect what they were uh, trying to do. And then they'd go through scale up and they would add talent. I believe that old school approach is truly upside down and backwards. Today's world is so much more complicated than it was 30 years ago. Uh, literally all the easy ideas, especially in business, have been done. So you really need to surround yourself with great talent as fast as possible so you can gain the multi-dimensional understanding to what you're trying to achieve and how you can achieve it. It is rare in today's world that one individual can come up with a vision and fully embrace all the different aspects of it. So drawing in others to help you figure out the best way to attack a specific business issue or problem and satisfy it for customers, I think is one of the most important things you can do. And it's really interesting too that VCs don't just look at TAM and they don't just look at your uniqueness from a technology. They invest in teams. So having in initial stages a good set of partners that can go and attack this opportunity with you, I think is really important. But then next, it is getting an alliance with a set of customers, very specific customers that you're trying to solve their issues and get an understanding of their issues and how you can resolve them is the next most important thing. And then when you get that sort of going as a, a true startup, that's when you try to draw in the VCs. So having those engaged, dedicated partners in the initial business, then the customers, and then scaling up with investors. So I think that you can really flourish with having a great culture and high customer satisfaction, and then investors will do really, really well if you take it from that approach. I love the flipping of the funnel there, but it does lead me to an element that Chris Cowan at Turn It In said that management upscaling is the most important role of CEO. Clearly, almost something that you very much are aligned to. I'm intrigued. How do you think about really assembling the best teams, what it takes to really get those best candidates in highly competitive markets, and how you've approached it so well? Well, I think Chris was saying when he was going through and talking about management, upscaling is the most important role. I think he probably meant both the talent and the management processes. And I totally agree with that. Let's just start with the management processes. You really have to create a framework as to how you're going to work together, how you're going to communicate, and what is the 
dedication to the mission and the, the goals and the objectives? And how are you going to truly have that all pulled together so that everyone is rowing jointly together? I, I like to use the analogy of crew. It's really interesting in that in crew, if all of the oarsmen put their oars in the water at the exact same time and pull exactly the same way, you go straight and you can effectively beat the competition. But if only one of those crew members puts in his oar before or after, what happens is you start to veer to the left or the right, you're not moving forward, and you'll probably lose the race. So I think it's really important to make sure that everybody is understanding the mission, the value that we're going to provide for the customer, and then how we're going to work jointly together to be the best organization on the planet to deliver success for those particular customers, and that everybody has to be aligned. So you want to get great talent that understands the inspiration that you have in trying to achieve what you're doing, but then you've got to put that framework in so that everybody understands it and and is moving forward jointly as a team. I'm really interested to kind of stick with that Oarsman analogy and, and ask, how do you determine whether someone's really not scaling with the organization and maybe their oars aren't being put in at the same time and are slightly lagging? How do you determine that scalability of person? Okay, so this is one area where I will go back to old school and old school is still working. I really believe in management by objectives. So after you come through with your mission and you come through with your strategy and you determine ruthlessly what your priorities are, then you have to set both short-term, mid-term, and long-term objectives. Stephen Covey would say that start with the end in mind. So start with your longer-term objectives. You know, what are your three or five-year goals? But then you have to draw it back to, so what are we doing this quarter? And the objectives have to be specific. They have to be measurable. And you need to be transparent. So at Sage Intact, all objectives for everybody in the organization, anybody else can see them. They are public. Now, they're confidential within the organization, but they are public to all of the people within the group so that everybody understands who is trying to achieve what and then what are the interdependencies. And then when one individual comes on in and they're working on maybe something that's priority five and I'm working on something that's priority one and they say, hey, I really need your help. That second person can say, you know what? I really do want to help you. I need to finish this particular element. We all know that's the number one objective, but I do understand that yours is important too. Let me finish this and then I'll come back to you and we'll work together. So you mind if I can come back to you in eight or 10 days, whatever it, it, it works on out. So it starts to create harmony in the organization as opposed to if that person came in with a number five objective and it wasn't prioritized and said, hey, Rob, would you help me? And I'd say, no, and I'm not going to. I've got other things to do. Then that person walks away and goes, oh boy, Rob is really a jerk. He won't even help me. And, and I don't like working with this guy. And it starts breaking down the teams. So having those objectives, having the priorities in place aligns the team. So back to the oarsmen, you can go very rapidly forward. Can I ask, if objectives maybe aren't hit, how do you think about timing and allowing the time to ramp for each individual? And when does one need to take action? Well, when I went through and said, 
said, your objectives need to be measurable, and there has to be deliverables associated with those objectives. You set very specific times when this activity needs to be done. And so if someone is not getting their objective done, or it appears that as we're mounting toward the date that it's supposed to be completed, that they're behind, that's when the team can go on in, or the managers can go on in and say, what's holding you back? And in most cases, it's not the individual that they lack the ability. It's usually there's a process issue. There's an interdependency issue that wasn't originally identified and needs to be identified, or there's poor training. But most people come to work to do, in fact, I think it's 99.5% of the people come to work to do a great job. So if they're not achieving their objectives, usually there's something broken down somewhere else. Plan wasn't as good or the process isn't as good. And so management then and or the team that they're working with needs to come forward and identify what we need to do and how we need to alter to get that individual or that element of the team performing to what was uh, was expected. And that then usually aligns. There are an awful lot of organizations that, uh, let's just say that you and I have objectives and I'm not achieving mine. You might say to your peers, oh boy, Rob was a bad hire. You know, he, he really did a great interview and he really pulled the wool over our eyes. He's not as good as we expected. Not sure he's going to make it. That, I got to tell you, is rare. It's very rare. You really should be flipping it back on why are we not able to achieve this and what is the root cause and attack the processes, not attack the people. And I got to tell you, this is an element of creating a great culture. If people know that you trust them, that you believe in them, and you rally to help them when they aren't achieving their objectives, they just turn to their friends and go, this is like the best place ever. I want to achieve my goals. I do feel some anxiety that I'm not feeling it, but I don't feel like they don't trust me and they don't believe I can do it. They attack the process and then we get it resolved and we get it resolved rapidly. And so that gives confidence to employees walking in the door every day going, boy, I love coming to work. Absolutely. And what a culture that is. Uh, I'm intrigued that you mentioned the, the key word there, culture. You've continuously won glass door after glass door awards for best place to work. Speaking of kind of culture, it's bandied around so often today. What does that really mean to you at its core? Well, Harry, I, I think there are a number of key factors that contribute to a winning company culture. And what I, I've learned over the years is that you know, the most important things are you have to have an inspired, solid mission. You also have to develop values and strategy and execution against that strategy. But the really hard part is back to what we were talking about, getting everyone within the organization to be on the same page and embodying all the right characteristics to be able to move forward jointly together. So what I've seen in technology is there have been a lot of companies that, you know, they grow very quickly and their mission and their values are really acting as the glue to bind every person in the organization together. And as the CEO, I know that it can be very difficult to pull the organization together and especially do it day by day by day by day. But if you have the mission and the values, they feed directly into you those objectives that we just talked about and all the way down to every employee. So every employee knows what they're working on and its priority and how it feeds the overall mission and the exact strategy that that they're trying to execute against. Mm -hmm. So I think the really hard part is setting the tone for the setting the tone for this culture that we've been trying to define here. And that really comes 
drawn into making sure everybody has a sense of ownership and that the way we work together, those key characters of the organization, turns coworkers into being teammates and fostering this winning environment and pulling everything together. So I would say that culture really comes down to how do you get teams to communicate and to embrace the overall goals and come together with plans and not have anybody being a jerk through the process. One of our values is no jerks here. And we take people through what could cause somebody to feel that you're a jerk when you get into tough discussions because having a diverse organization, you will get into different experiences and people will have different ways that they're judging the risk level associated with a a particular initiative. And you want them to bring forth those experiences to maximize the overall planning as we go forward. And depending on the way someone brings forth those experiences, it could turn a difficult discussion into a terrible discussion because they feel like you're attacking them. That's where we train people about how to bring forth their ideas, not attack others, not put others down, but to make sure that we're building on each other's experiences uh, so we can come out with the right outcome. And then if you do those somehow get into an offensive kind of interaction, let's just say that I'm the one that's being a jerk in this conversation or I'm telling you, you know, Harry, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea about the issues that are in front of us. Here's what my experience has been in trying to do this. And it was just a disaster at another company. And you're just being naive as you're trying to move forward with this overall plan. Well, you would probably be pretty offended that I just put you down. So what we teach our team to do is say, for you to come back to me and say, even though I was the one that was a jerk and say, you know what, Rob, I didn't like the way that that conversation just went. We're both here together to serve our customers and make Sage Intech wildly successful. And I'm sure I must have done something wrong. Can we start again? And let's try and figure this one on out. I will tell you 80% of the time, the jerk will say, ah, Harry, that wasn't you. It was me. And I'm sorry. You know what? I brought some of my personal issues into that conversation. I didn't have a great conversation with my wife this morning. I was walking out the door. That was on me. I am so sorry I, I, I talked to you in the way I did. Now, 20% of the time, they won't admit it. They'll just say, Harry, thanks. Yeah, let's try it again. And then usually you still can get through it. We find that when people go back and interact with other people where they've had some difficulty with and do it soon and rapidly, you're usually able to minimize the jerk quotient within their organization and the organization can proceed. Now, if somebody remains being a jerk on an ongoing basis, that actually is the fastest way that we'll ask them to leave the organization. It's not about lack of experience or lack of performance as much as it is disrupting our overall organization and being a cancer within the organization. So if that's the right structure then to really get that optimal culture, I'm intrigued when you look at the Valley today, where do you think many go wrong in their desire to create this high performance company culture? You know, I think that one of the pressures that you have in Silicon Valley and with a a newer organization even outside of of Silicon Valley is that there's so many things to do that a CEO will stay very, could stay very tactically focused on execution. And it's like, we've got to do all these different things and we keep trying to move the 
needle day by day by day. And there are always so many things to do, more than you think is humanly possible. And you're usually up against bigger competitors. So you've got to be agile and you just got to be able to adjust to the what's going on in the market day by day by day. And I would tell you that if you don't create the framework with the, we discussed up front about what's the overall mission, why is it inspiring, and what are the goals, and then setting up the objectives, that day-to-day agile approach actually can get you into trouble. Because as Yogi Berra said, when you get to the fork in the road, take it, you may end up somewhere you didn't expect to be. <laughs> Speaking of kind of that objectives and that quantifying of those objectives, I do want to finish today on arguably two of the most important elements in terms of kind of SaaS business success today, external from culture and hiring, being the customers themselves and the metrics that they produce. You've said to me before that cloud companies are customer-centric companies. Tell me, what do you really mean by this? And are they more so than maybe other businesses? So a cloud company's differentiation versus an on-prem company is that in the past with on-prem, most software companies got 80% of all the revenue up front when they sold the solution, they sold their software, and then typically about 20% through maintenance over the, the following years. With cloud, you get it day by day, month by month, year by year. And most cloud companies have a yearly or an annual subscription. So if you haven't done a great job for that customer, they drop you. And also what's very common within cloud companies, it usually takes one to two years to get your money back for the investment you've made in just sales and marketing from that customer. So if they drop you after one year, you haven't even covered your initial costs, let alone your full P&L. So it is imperative that a cloud company stay close to its customers and making sure that they are in it for the long haul. Now, we know with regard to customer lifetime overall value that in a cloud environment, you typically can make anywhere between two to five times more as a company. If you've stayed close to your customers and are providing them with great value, you're going to be wildly successful and make a lot more money. So cloud approach really gets you thinking about the customer and also long-term relationships as opposed to the old way. And, you know, I did on-prem for uh, about 25 uh, years in my career. It was all about just getting net new customers, selling them it, and then figuring out where you're going to get the next new customer. And it was rare that you spent a lot of time figuring out what else could we do for our current customers because you already gotten 80% of the revenue that you were ever going to get from them up front. So that's this business model, the cloud business model is really putting the company on the same side of the desk as the customer. If the customer doesn't have wild success, the company won't have wild success. So I'm so with you on the customer centricity, but I am slightly perplexed and troubled when aligning it to an SMB market where you can't have this extensive customer success team serving them. How do you think about ensuring that retention and high customer touch point with such a wide SMB market? So you just have to change the different approaches within your overall business so you can stay close to your customers. So we at Sage and Tech are highly efficient in our sales and marketing efforts, where if in the older days or even at the enterprise level, you aren't as efficient in sales and marketing, and it's okay for you to take on that cost because then you're selling extremely 
extremely large deals or in the past you extracted more money upfront from the customer. So let me give you an example. And most software companies in Silicon Valley are selling to enterprise or are selling on-prem. Um, marketing would typically generate about 20% and in a really good case would be 50% of the opportunities for this uh, sales team. At Sage Intact, marketing generates 80% of all of the opportunities. So we're highly efficient through digital marketing and other uh, means of finding customers, finding prospects and executing against that so that we then can stay and invest in our customer success teams and then our product management and engineering organizations are constantly interacting with our current customers. As well as we dissect the marketplace from a vertical perspective and not only verticals but going into micro verticals so that we can be the best in the world for those uh, verticals that we serve which causes us to then be interacting with those customers on an ongoing basis and understanding after we've already deployed and implemented our financial management solution, what can we continue to do to help them in their business? Because what we find with most of our customers is six months to a year in after they first have implemented, say, Gintech, their business is already changing. They already have new requirements. And we want to make sure that on an ongoing basis, we're constantly satisfying and actually staying ahead of them as they're building their growth, typically growth-oriented businesses. Absolutely. And amazing to hear that customer centricity. I do want to, though, dive into our favorite 60-second SASTA. So, Rob, 60-second SASTA, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, so one from our friend Byron Dieter. What's the biggest splurge or purchase to date? Cars. Too many cars. Too many cars. Fast cars. I'm not going to tell you what kind. There are a lot of them. Fast cars. (laughs) We've got it. Why does Greg Sands call you the big fundamental? I think he relates it back to the Spurs and that we have been very, very consistent in our performance year over year, quarter over quarter, month over month, day after day. So for the last five years, we have been within 1% of our plan in delivering results for our investors and for the organization. And that was within 1% plus or minus either way. That consistency is truly unheard of with an organization growing 35 to 40%. Tell me a moment in your life that's really changed the way you think about the life going forward. My mother really focused on making sure that I had the right values and she instilled in me the golden rule, do unto others as you have done unto yourself. And about 10 years into business, I actually found out that there was a better rule and it was called the platinum rule. Do unto others as they would want to have done unto them. So find out what is important to others before thinking about what you think you would like in this particular situation. Find out what they would like and then do that. And too many times we concentrate on ourselves and I've just learned that if you concentrate on others, you can just have wild success, not only in business, but in your personal and family relationships. What's your favorite SaaS reading material, Rob? Rainy day, what do you sit down to? I don't I don't know that it's specifically to SaaS as much as I really just like reading a lot of the latest business books and I like the broader perspective of what others are doing throughout our economy and then try to apply it back to SaaS 
SaaS and cloud. So trying to stay up on the, the latest business trends uh, across the board and then try to be a visionary as to how you can take concepts that were started somewhere else and apply it to our business. And then I want to finish today, Rob. As you said, incredible eight companies, seven immense successes. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? So I was, you know, we talked about CEOs 30 years ago. I was classically taught. You got investors. Yeah, they have great customers and then take care of your employees. And I wish I had known, figure out how to develop a great culture and draw on the teams as fast as possible and hire great talent because great talent will get you through the best opportunities. They'll maximize it and they'll also help you get through the lulls that always happen in business where, you know, the business environment is, is retreated. Great people will figure out a way to gain market share and come out of it on the other side more ahead of the competition. So I wish I had learned that earlier in my career. Rob, as I said, I had so many great things, both from Greg and from Byron. I can't thank you enough for giving up the time today. It's been such a pleasure. And likewise, Harry, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I I'll always enjoy passing on a lot of the great experiences that I've had, and you've helped me facilitate that. So thanks so much. What an incredible figure in our industry and someone I so look up to. If you'd like to see more from Rob, which I highly recommend, then you can find him on Twitter at SageIntactRob. That really is a must. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can find us on Instagram at hstebbings1996 for all things behind the scenes. But before we leave you today, let me tell you about Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform for professionals, teams, and businesses who want to master their contacts and create authentic connections, allowing you to merge contact information across your address books into a single source of truth while automatically identifying and merging duplicate contacts. They also keep all your contacts up to date with public data, including photos, jobs, and social profiles, and keep them organized, synchronized, and up to date and safe. Able to scan business cards and automatically capture signatures from Gmail. These and many more features have made Full Contact an essential app for people-focused professionals, including many VCs. And to download this app, simply check out Full Contact on the Apple app store google play store or online at fullcontact.com and speaking of awesome products you need in your life thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS. razu razu is an online fundraising and donor engagement platform originally designed for non-profits but now serving a broader range of personal charity and peer-to-peer fundraising causes too customers range from giants like habitat for humanity to individuals and smbs and you can learn more at razu.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Razoo did. Simply head over to wepay.com forward slash Sasta. Who knows? Work with WePay and you could even be featured here in a future profile. Start at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.